This is The Future Of, where experts share their vision of the future and how their work is helping shape it for the better. I'm David Carsten. In a world witnessing an unprecedented loss of living species with 40% of plants facing extinction threats, having a conversation around preserving biodiversity has become critical. In this episode, I chatted with Professor Ricardo Mancera from the Curtin Medical School and Dr. Bryn Fanacotta from Kings Park Science, who is also an adjunct research scientist at Curtin University. We delved into the role of using cryopreservation for long-term conservation of plant species, asked why this is necessary for conservation agencies and industry, and discussed emerging cryobiotechnology that could be a viable alternative to conventional seed storage. For more insights on this topic, See the links in our show notes. Bryn, Australia's biodiversity is truly unique and another threat from factors like climate change and deforestation. How much of a challenge does plant extinction pose to our country's very special ecosystems? Yes, so Australia's biodiversity certainly is unique. It's um, about 70% of the plants are endemic and not found anywhere else in the world. So we do a lot of work just understanding our unique species and trying to save them. Um, obviously, extinction is a threat around the world, but Australia is certainly experiencing a lot of threats to our populations. Um, the climate change and big fires we've been having recently certainly put a lot of populations under uh, stress and uh, more at risk of extinction. Um, so trying to go and collect samples and conserve those samples and maintain the existing populations is a huge amount of effort we're trying to put in to save our unique biodiversity here. And that biodiversity is massive in scale. I mean, even our taxonomy isn't complete as yet, is it? Yeah, we still find new species. People go out for a, uh, a trip on a helicopter up into the Kimberleys and come back with 10, 15 new species that have never been found before. So certainly makes things very challenging when someone says, oh, actually, there's a whole new host of species that we have no idea if they are threatened, how well the populations are doing. This is the first time we've seen it and recorded it. So yeah, working with those sort of new species where nothing is known at all, certainly a challenge. So we really need a, an army of Bryn and Ricardos on the ground doing this work. Are there enough of you? Uh, I think it's always a struggle to get enough people, but there's certainly a lot of people interested in citizen scientists and, you know, people working in the department, um, all interested in trying to conserve and maintain our unique flora. So. Well, Ricardo... Uh, with regards to the conservation of, of these species, what role does cryobiotechnology actually play in that conservation? Can you explain that to us? Sure. Cryobiotechnology is the last resource. When it comes to, I'm focusing now on plants, plants that don't produce enough seeds, or even if they produce seeds, they're very difficult to store for the long term. So it's our last line of defense. And unfortunately, there are a lot of species uh, around the world, as well as in Australia, that fall in that category. So it provides us with a way of ensuring that what we refer to as germplasm, so seeds or other plant material, can be preserved forever in principle. So it's essential that it's a technique that we continue to develop to make sure that in 50 or 100 years time, when somebody decides to thaw this material, that those plants can regrow. 
Well, can you tell us about what the, the pillars, the main ingredients of the process are? Um, and what is it that you talk about when you talk about plant material? Sure. So we can use, for example, seeds. Sometimes we have to extract the embryos from winning the seeds. We can also sometimes cut uh, what are called shoot tips from plants. Or we can sometimes use what is called callus, which is like um, damaged tissue that is re being regenerated from plants. So there's a range of material that can be used to regrow an entire plant. You can't quite do the same, for example, with us. You know, if I cut a finger off you, I'm not going to get another one of you later, right? So we would have to then rely, in the case of animals or, or, or humans, of course, eggs or sperm or embers per, per se. So that's what we refer to as plant material. So it's good that in the case of plants, there's a, a diversity of material that we can use for this purpose. And what medium does the process happen in? So initially, a lot of this material can be taken directly from a greenhouse. More commonly, it happens from tissue culture. So you have a, um, uh, an agar uh, in, a, in a plate that you're growing small platelets, and then you can extract from there the material that you want. You cut it out, and then you make it uh, undergo this process of cryopreservation. Oh, here we go. What's all that about? All that is... It's a very stressful process for the plant material um, involved because we need to achieve a number of things before we actually put it in the master situation, which is liquid nitrogen. So we need to make sure that this plant material has been desiccated as much as possible. Desiccated? Yep. So it, there's less water present within it. And, and I'll come back to why water is the enemy here. And we also need to make sure that the plants gradually get used to the presence of certain uh, compounds that we call cryoprotective agents. So when you put something in liquid nitrogen, the idea is to cool it down really fast to liquid nitrogen temperatures, which is minus 196 degrees. That is very, very, very cold. And the idea of doing that is that at such cold temperatures, nothing happens. You arrest physics, you arrest chemistry, and as a consequence, you arrest biology. So everything is in a suspended animation state, just like in sci-fi movies. That's the goal, right? Uh, Han Solo in the... Indeed. In principle, indeed. The trouble is that when you cool things down to such low temperatures, you're very likely to form a lot of ice. And biology contains a lot of water. So... Ice is really bad because it kills cells, it kills tissues, and it is really the enemy of cryopreservation. So hence, we try to remove as much water beforehand, this process of desiccation that I was referring to, and we use these cryoprotective agents that also help to desiccate or dehydrate all of these materials, but also are very good at preventing the formation of these ice. So we try to induce a process called vitrification, which is really the, the golden aim in, in, in cryobiotechnology. So in the inside of all our cells and also within cells, instead of there being any eyes, we form this amorphous solid, which is called the vitrified state, and there is no eyes, and there is nothing that goes on in terms of chemistry or biochemistry. And so these tissues can then be preserved indefinitely in this liquid nitrogen. What is, the, what is the key to achieving that is it vitreous state? That, that, that's right. 
is is it an exact temperature point or are there other elements in making that happen? So we take it to this liquid nitrogen temperature and the problem is that by the time we get there, often we have formed ice already. So we have produced the vitrified state, but there's also a lot of ice that has killed, that has killed cells. Or often a lot of ice gets formed a year, 10 years later when you thaw the material and you bring it back to say normal ambient temperatures, often that's when ice gets formed because you're bringing it up from very, very low temperatures. And as you approach room temperature, you might have a bit of formation of ice. So there's these two places where ice formation can occur. And it's very hard as a consequence for a technology to be able to account for both the beginning of the process and towards the end of the process. In your work, Ricardo, uh, is cryobiotechnology playing an increasing role in the preservation of species? Oh, definitely. Definitely. And it's not only uh, species that are endangered because of deforestation or disease or global warming or what, what have you, right? It's also playing an increasing role in uh, animal conservation and indeed in reproductive medicine, you know, in vitro fertilization, you know. So it's the same technology. And as the world warms up and uh, there's more uh, destruction of natural environments, we see an increasing need to uh, resort to this type of technology to conserve the flora of Australia and indeed the flora of the world. So it is, there's an increasing need for this type of technology to succeed. Bryn, this very complex technique of, of preservation, uh, as Ricardo was saying, is playing an increasing role. Um, is it replacing uh, traditional seed storage and, and what are the flaws with traditional seed storage, particularly in the sphere of our native flora? So this technique is not supposed to replace a traditional seed bank. A seed bank is a very useful tool for conservation um, and a, there's a, the majority of species will actually produce sufficient appropriate seed that can go into a seed bank and be maintained in there for decades as a minimum. Um, but it is certainly complements the seed bank for the species where we're not finding sufficient seed or we need to go through an alternative process to conserve that species. And there is certainly cases of species that will just never produce seed. They don't. They clonal. They will basically never produce seed that is viable for an off, for a seed bank. Or they come from the tropical areas and the rainforest areas where you have what are called recalcitrant seed, which are not amenable to the desiccation phase. That's just not part of their life cycle to desiccate out the seed um, and then germinate them when there's sufficient water. In a rainforest, there's always water. So the seeds just get going as soon as they can. Um, so those species are certainly becoming more of an issue um, lately with deforestation of our rainforests. There's a huge number of species in there that are not producing orthodox seed that can go into a seed bank. So we need alternative methods of conservation. And that's when cryopreservation comes into play. It's a very useful method if we can get those seed material that plant germplasm into cryostorage, it is very safe in cryostorage for the next thousand years until we can basically go and reforest and replant them and regrow those rainforests and hopefully maintain that diversity of the, the, the plant species in there. Well, Ricardo, 
just on that complexity of uh, cryobiotechnology and uh, the, the the process of, of preserving through that technique, is it a one-size-fits-all uh, solution uh, f- across the different floral species, or do you have to start tailoring it for individuals? Unfortunately, it's not a one-size-fits-all. And I guess that reflects the diversity of plants and their metabolism, the properties of their cell membranes, and the way they have adapted throughout evolution to their environment. So cryobiotechnology over the decades has suffered precisely from this problem that it's been developed, and indeed successfully, but nonetheless developed on a, a trial and error basis. And much of the work that we are doing in collaboration uh, with Kings Park Science, and indeed much of the work that is done around the world, is trying to understand what are the basic principles that we can then go and try and tweak for each plant species, or at least for, um, say, a genre of this species, to try and come up with targeted trial biotechnology approaches that work ideally for those species. And there are species that you for the first time try to cryopreserve them and they work beautifully. And there are other species that you can spend years and we've, we've had some of those <laughs> for sure uh, in our experience that are just very, very difficult to cryopreserve. And sometimes it's not clear why. Why is it that this one is relatively easy and this one is just so hard? And sometimes within the same species, um, some sometimes some some of them are easy, some are, some of them are not. Right, so uh, some it's it's and this is why we're trying to to develop the basic science, understanding well what are the effects that ha- the effects that have to do with, for example, their genetic properties, uh, things that have to do with the composition of their cell membranes, for example, um, to try and find ways that we can then fine tune as much as possible the cryopreservation protocols that we're developing for that species to guarantee its success. It does sound like between the pair of you, you've got several lifetimes of work ahead of you. <laughs> there are so many species and and, uh, and and obviously so many characteristics that are individual to, to some of these species. It's a, it's a mountain of work, but so worthwhile, so worthy. Um, you mentioned Kings Park, Ricardo. I'm going to throw to Bryn here. Bryn, you share your time between Curtin University and Kings Park, what's your what's your role over at Kings Park? So I am the research scientist that is curating the tissue culture and cryopreservation collections at Kings Park, focusing on threatened species in Western Australia. So we have just over 400 threatened species in Western Australia that are of conservation concern. Something needs to be done to ensure that they don't become extinct. Um, so we don't certainly don't want to lose any more plant species. And um, so tissue culture has uh, a unique role in that conservation aspect, um, particularly for the few species where there's very small populations of plants remaining, say four or five plants left in the wild. Um, We can go with tissue culture through the clonal process of tissue culture and maintain all the genetic diversity of that species and then put them into cryostorage. Uh, to be raised for translocation programs or future work, research in the future. Um, so it complements that side of things. We'll hopefully get seed as well that we can put in the seed bank. We might be able to send up uh, some living collections in the Botanic Garden as an additional uh, conservation collection 
Um, but basically, we're trying to use all these different tools that we can to ensure nothing happens and we, we have saved the species as best we can um, and have a, a supply of material, hopefully, for future translocations to bolster up that population and ensure it, it, it is a healthy population into the future. Well, Brent, obviously, the scientific community is spearheading um, the, the preservation work, and that is so important. But um, you alluded before to the notion of of uh, small plant communities that might be unique to one location even in, say, the vast expanse of outback Western Australia, for instance. And you can't help but immediately think of uh, projects in those spaces that uh, that take up a lot of acreage, a lot of hectareage, if that is such a word. Uh, and uh, what I'd like to know from you is whether or not uh, resources companies that do take up a lot of space and uh, and do uh, require a lot of um, of the land uh, in their role in revegetating and restoring the landscape after their operations are over. Um, are they partnering with the scientific community in this uh, this uh, this work that you are both involved in? Yes, um, we certainly collaborate with industry and um, how I try and supply the science behind how best to restore um, potentially degraded ecosystems back into their their native um, back to their native um, how can I put it diversity rates. Um, so. Working with the industry and doing the basic research behind how best to restore that ecosystem is, is vital, basically. If we don't do that research, we're not going to get back the same representation that was there before. And I think it's essential to ensure that the same species and the diversity that was there before is returned. Otherwise, we're going to basically be losing out. We're going to miss out on essential plants in the ecosystem that might be food sources for the, the fauna, um, particular species that are, you know, we need, the orchids are a casing point where they have one particular pollinator that's associated with that orchid. If you, if you lose that symbiotic relationship, you can never return them back there. They will never go into the next generation and maintain its self-sustaining population. So ensuring the whole ecosystem is healthy at the end of that is vital to ensure that that area stays as a healthy ecosystem. Ricardo, more pointedly, are you, as a, as a scientist and as part of the scientific community, seeing uh, active collaboration with the resources sector on cryobiotechnology specifically? Yes, and indeed we have had uh, in the past, for example, a grant with a couple of mining companies, Alcoa of Australia and BHP Billiton, that was aimed precisely at helping them develop um, through our cryobiotechnology research, the ability to uh, enhance their uh, storage of some of the species that they were most problematic for them. And we actually even visited uh, some of their sites down south. And it's, it's actually very interesting and indeed amazing to see how um, not only they have the interest, but actually they also have the legal obligation according to WA legislation, to try to take back those environments that they have mined to as close as possible to what they used to look like before. And we've visited some of these sites. And it's amazing that it's not just, they're not planting pine trees. That might be the case 
decades ago, but they're actually trying, uh, as Brin alluded to before, they have to restore uh, the original diversity of, of, of plants at least, but also there's the, there's the other species that are involved. And um, it's, a, it's an excellent example of them putting their money where their mouth is and saying, yes, we, we value this research that you're doing and we're going to collaborate with you. And uh, it, it worked really well for us. So, and there's a long history, particularly with, uh, with King's Park Science of collaborating with those two companies, but as well as other, other, other companies in the mining sector here in WA. Well, that's the big picture, Ricardo and Bryn, but uh, shortly I'd like to find out a little bit more about your individual research journeys. But before we do, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back right after these messages. Do you want to expand your career prospects in science or engineering? A postgraduate course at Curtin University can help you gain advanced technical expertise, skills and knowledge. You might collaborate on real projects with partners including BHP, CSIRO and NASA, or work on high-impact research initiatives, including the Binar Space Program and the Square Kilometre Array. Get started on your postgraduate journey today by visiting curtain.edu forward slash postgrad. Ricardo, describe the research work you're, you're doing here at Curtin, and, and what steered you towards cryopreservation and, and biophysical chemistry as uh, an area of interest? So the work that I do at Curtin that I have been doing for pretty much since I did my PhD is um, what we call um, molecular modeling and simulation. So it's an area where we use uh, typically high-performance computing facilities like um, here the POSI Center, um, you know, supercomputing facilities. And what we do is we use these computers to model and simulate how molecules behave, how they interact with one another uh, in systems as complex as in the cell membranes, for example, or proteins in our cells. And while it requires a number of approximations, uh, the ability of this method is that it tells you what every atom in your system is doing at any moment in time. So they're very powerful in terms of extracting properties that you basically cannot obtain in any experimental way. So you have to rely on an approach like that to obtain that level of detail. And it was something that interested me a lot because I realized that is the only way one could have to understand the molecular mechanisms that are at play in something as complex as biology. And you're asking me how I ended up doing some of the work that I do related to cryopreservation. And it's, a, it's an interesting story because I was coming from, even before I, I came to Australia, I was coming from trying to understand very basic forces, intermolecular forces in, 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 in solution in water. And I came across a, a particular molecule called dimethyl sulfoxide or amongst friends called DMSO. And so uh, one of the properties of this, this solvent is that it's used as a cryoprotective agent in cryopreservation. And that caught my eye. I'm, I'm like, well, what is that? And without extending the, the story too much, uh, it was always at the back of my mind to study the molecular mechanism that these molecules have uh, that confers them these cryoprotective abilities. And so when I came to Australia uh, 18 years plus ago, I was interested in you know, I was coming to develop my own research group and I was interested in pursuing this particular avenue of, of research. And as I'm 
doing my, my searches of the literature, I came across this particular paper that caught my eye. It wasn't about this DMSO molecule, but it was about other crop protective agents. And I realized that the authors were from Curtin and from King's Park Science. I was like, wow, well, that's amazing. So I got in touch with, with some of these individuals, some at Curtin, some at King's Park. And it wasn't long before I realized, well, here we have, or I have, I should say, world experts in cryopreservation, of, in this case of plants, um, that I can collaborate with. And so, you know, yep. uh, the rest is history, as they say, because it opened up so many opportunities um, to have the real-life experimentation and application, real-life application, because, you know, these this guys at King's Park, they're conserving the flora of the precious flora of this of this state for real they are doing it for real and being able to visit their facilities and being shown for example species that are already extinct in the wild but that they they keep them there so i was i was amazed by that and and to realize that there was an opportunity to develop a collaboration not only that would satisfy my interest in doing this um, molecular simulation to understand mechanisms of action but actually to try to working with them to develop the science in general of crowd preservation further, which is something that has happened quite successfully. And Brim was indeed uh, one of, well, you were the first, the first, the very first student that we had on, on this project. And seeing takeoff using other um, scientific approaches to advance the science of, of cryobiotechnology in collaboration with, with King's Park has been an amazing journey. Ricardo, without getting into the weeds too much uh, in terms of the complexities of the work that you do, um, just a question on the Pawsey supercomputer and how that's required to to set up and examine the simulations. Um, is that obviously a very important uh, avenue through which to, uh, I guess, predict how uh, molecular behaviour changes at negative 196 degrees? We don't normally study such low temperatures because things move so, so slowly at those temperatures, right? But what we do is we try to mimic, for example, the dehydration conditions that we talk about that we need to achieve during, during cryopreservation. We try to mimic, for example, changing the composition of the cell membranes that all plant cells have. We try to mimic changing the the composition of the cryoprotective agents and their mixtures that are being used to try and get an understanding of the basic mechanisms at play. And so th that's how we get a lot of insight as to what is the mechanism by which these agents can uh, protect cell membranes from the damages of, of cryopreservation. Bryn, uh, Ricardo uh, alluded to your uh, crossing paths uh, when you were a student initially, and now you are one of the, and I quote, one of the people at Kings Park preserving for real, um, which I love, Ricardo. Um, can you tell us about your path from uh, those early, uh, those, the, the early work that you were doing with, uh, with Ricardo to, to, to now, I mean, you're still working together essentially, are you not? Yes. Yes. So, um, this was back in 2009, they advertised an honors project to start basically understanding what's happening to cell membranes and how plant cell membranes 
can be adapted to try and promote a, a more stable membrane during the cryopreservation process. And we can do stuff like expose plants to different temperature stresses or light stresses or something else like that, that actually physically changes the cell membranes in plants. And some of these, after they've acclimated to these conditions, these plants will actually do better through cryopreservation. So that's where I started my honors degree, looking at the composition of membranes, and that fed into the molecular simulation work that continues. Um, and then I moved into looking at additional stresses that the plants are experiencing during the different stages of cryopreservation. So we looked into the role of antioxidants to protect from oxidative stress, looking at different compounds we can add and change in the cryopreservation procedure to try and improve regeneration rates afterwards. Um, and now I'm the one curating some of that collection, and I can tell you we have 37 threatened species in long-term cryostorage that are available where you can rewarm them when they're required and bring them back and plant them back out into the wild if something ever happens to that population. Well, Brett, that sounds like the, I guess, the zenith of your work right there, isn't it? That's the, that's the point, right? Um, are there any other moments uh, along the ensuing well, decade or more since you met Ricardo that, that really sort of stand out as uh, real highlights of, of your research journey so far? I think the very first time you develop a protocol and it works for a species is amazing. To say, I have got a protocol, I've put the species through, they've been frozen, and you know this is one of the most stressful things you can do to a plant probably without sort of weirdly killing it. It's sort of dead in cryostorage, nothing's happening. And we can rewarm it and regrow it and say, look, there it is, it's growing again. In a thousand years, someone might come along and take one of these samples I've cryopreserved and do the same process and bring it out and put it back in the wild if it's needed at that point in time. So to say, look, it's there, it's saved, it's cryopreserved, like we have that plant, you know, we, we've, there's no risk of extinction for that plant there because it's in cryostorage. We can bring it back anytime we want at this point. That's, it's amazing that way. I, I can only imagine, uh, considering that it, it was you that stood between uh, survival and extinction of that particular species. That's, that must be uh, something really satisfying. Yep, yep. No, it's great. It's great to yeah, have that sort of potential impact for that, that plant species where you, know, you can say, we have conserved this species. And much the same, hopefully there will, the population will never need that cryostored sample and it will do well in the wild and be safe there. But it's there just in case, and that's it's great to sort of in the background to have that and say, look, I think we're okay. Well, Ricardo, for, for both of you, really, the, the work will always continue. It will always, there is so much to do, but in your time uh, at the coalface, have there been some really notable moments where you've thought to yourself, you know, this, this hard work and this perseverance is really worthwhile? There's definitely the more theoretical side of, of the answer to your question, which relates to the work that we do. And it has been very gratifying to be able to start to tease out how different cryoprotective molecules operate in, in relation to, for example, cell membranes, and they all have the unique quirks about it. So being able to explain that behavior is definitely very, very gratifying for me. But to be honest, the, the most gratifying part of it all is to see that the science that is being developed in the lab 
that goes hand in hand with what we do, of course, using using computers, is actually being applied for real, and I'll, and I'll use that, that phrase again, for real, uh, over there at King's Park. And they are succeeding, uh, and much of this work has been done by Brain as well as a number of students um, that have come from, from Curtin, and they are succeeding in, in advancing designs and crop-preserving more and more species. And it's when you realize just the way Rin phrased this, that it's, that it's actually making a difference to the world, right? So it's not just blue skies research that I, w- you know, I do all the time anyway, but it's to actually see it uh, at, at play, having real, demonstrable, tangible outcomes that will remain for the future. And, and, and it's, it's, it's very, very gratifying. Very, very gratifying. To me, that's that's the best part of it. To see this for real in 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 a world that is under threat from so many sides, to see that one can actually make, even if it's small, can still make a difference for posterity. To me, that's the most gratifying part of it. Final question that I'm throwing to both of you, and you two can decide how to tap dance around this. Um, but your work already demonstrates the collaboration between different disciplines to come up with the result. Um, what are uh, other potential scientific domains that you see collaborating in this kind of work into the future? Okay, Sibrin, hesitating a little bit. So let me let me step in uh, to start with. Um, if anything, our collaboration with King's Park has precisely been based on keep adding more approaches and potentially disciplines to what we do. So there's the two of us here, but we also have had other collaborators and some of them are physicists, for example, and some of them are chemists. And um, although I'm a chemist myself, um, and so being able to say, well, how about if we look at metabolic studies? How about if we look at biochemical studies? How about if we start to look at more molecular genetics approaches, how genes are being expressed, which is something that we have been doing more recently. So this, how about if we try new approaches that have not been used either in plant crop preservation or certainly not with any plant species. So, and and being able to find the right partners, whether it's uh, at Curtin or whether it's uh, at uh, UWA or whether it's in other parts of Australia or indeed around the world. Um, it's certainly that we have never shied away from doing. And it's a field that can be enriched precisely because it's a complex one and it requires input from a lot of disciplines. So clearly that's where we're heading into the future to continue to expand the, the different approaches and the different disciplines that come into play. And so it's it's great that um, um, Brin's predecessor, Dr. Eric Bunn, and, and now Brin himself, uh, because of their backgrounds, they have always been very keen to expand the repertoire of techniques. And so that's what I think guarantees the future of, of, of this field and for sure the, the future of this part of, of the work that King's Park conducts. I would add that expanding our expertise and trying to transfer those skills to other botanic gardens around Australia, other institutes that are interested in cryopreservation is also very valuable. So. If we can get more data on someone else working on a different species from the other side of Australia and saying, hey, look, we had a bit of a breakthrough here working with this protocol or this change or this thing that we've done, 
it all helps bring it together into our understanding of how these protocols can be improved. Um, so certainly working with, you know, a, a nice wide range of scientists across the world and trying to bring together all our data and our understanding is going to be vital for how we progress into the future and, and you know, continue to conserve more and more species. We sort of need to ramp up our our processes, like the more people working on it, the more we can get in there, the more we can understand. So certainly useful to collaborate as extensively as we can. It certainly does seem that collaboration is the key to such a large set of tasks. Um, and it is such important work. And it's been an absolute pleasure to, to hear how the both of you are really uh, at the bleeding edge of, of, of preserving our species here in Western Australia, but also contributing to uh, the preservation techniques of flora Australia-wide and, and even globally, if, if it truly is part of an international conversation. Uh, Ricardo, Bryn, thank you very much for spending some time with us today. Well, thank you very much. It was uh, very enjoyable. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. And you've been listening to The Future Of, a podcast powered by Curtin University. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it. And if you want to hear more from experts, stay up to date by subscribing to us on your favourite podcast app. Bye for now.